Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 315, air date July 20th. 2018. Welcome, everybody, to Burlington and Beyond. Tonight, we have a very special guest with us tonight, uh, one that everybody should know at this point. His name is Dr. Shiva Ayadore. He's to my right, and Dr. Shiva is running for U.S. Senate. Uh, chief opponent will be the uh, Elizabeth Warren, Senator, current Senator Elizabeth Warren, and the Republicans haven't quite decided who they are going to run yet. On my left is Joan Kennedy, and uh, she has some special questions to be asking tonight of uh, Dr. Shiva. And Dr. Shiva, we welcome you. Thank you for joining us Great, on the program. Thanks for having tonight. me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. I was wondering if you could start off by telling us a little bit about your background, a little bit about where you're from and how you got here. Would you mind? Sure. Um, you know, uh, people like me aren't, frankly, supposed to run for U.S. Senate. You know, I didn't come from a wealthy family or a famous family. Uh, in fact, Larry, I didn't actually come from a typical Indian family. You know, my uh, mom came from a broken home. This is in India. Uh, her father abandoned her and her eight siblings when she was a child and my father grew up in war-torn Burma and his first uh, uh, schoolhouse was under a mango tree when he was 10 years old hmm. and in hmm. spite of that you know my mom ended up getting a master's degree in mathematics at a time when women were supposed to sit at home and you're talking about now on top of it we were considered low caste untouchables or deplorables in India that's the lowest class right uh, yeah uh, and on top of that my dad ended up becoming a very successful engineer so, you know, I, as a kid, uh, was born in Bombay, slums all around me. And I also grew up in a small village uh, with my grandparents who worked 16 hours a day uh, mm -hmm. planting rice and cotton mm. and in a small subsistence farm. So by all accord, you know, uh, the Indian caste system was based on where you are born determines your destiny or your fate. But what my parents showed me was, and, or my grandparents, was through grit, uh, you know, determination that you could overcome, you know, and you could determine your own destiny. So that's what I grew up as a kid learning. So, but in spite of that, coming to America was, you know, one in a trillion, if you really think about that, even with, within those conditions. Mm -hmm. And in uh, 19, early 1970, my dad was invited to the United States because of his incredible skill. He came here with $75 in his pocket. Mm -hmm. uh, we had to wait, uh, you know, close to a year, uh, my sister, myself, and my mom, and then we came here. And then we settled in Patterson, New, Jer New Jersey, one of the poorest cities in the United States. So we had to mm. uh, start a whole new life, a very traditional Indian family moving at a time to America where there were sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? It's a turn of Vietnam is still on, uh, going on. Mm -hmm. uh, the counterculture movement is taking a lot place. Of political right. movements going Yeah, on. so we, we, you know, it was a literally coming from India to here in that environment. So a huge, huge east west, you know, uh, cultural difference in many levels. Mm -hmm. Um, but I found Patterson was completely segregated, right? Primarily African-American, if you can think about it, okay. right? And then um, my parents were interesting people. They believed, as my great-grandfather did in education, my great-grandfather, by the way, is an indentured servant. I don't know if people know, the first quote-unquote slaves were actually from South India, went to Trinidad and Tobago. Okay, they were taken on 
ships and you had to work your uh, ship journey people. off. Right. And that's what my great-grandfather was. He went to Burma. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but anyway, so I come from a very interesting background. Right. Uh, so you won't find a lot of Indians like me here either. So I was always, as a child, exposed to two different kinds of uh, systems that I was interested in. One was the fact that there were systems of oppression, like the caste system, mm -hmm. which I was very intrigued by in my interest in politics as a kid. Mm -hmm. And the other was my grandmother, believe it or not, was a village healer. Not only did she work in the fields, but she, on weekends, she could observe your face. Okay. She could determine what was going on inside your body mm -hmm. using India's traditional system of medicine. Okay. And she would diagnose the local villagers, and I saw her empirically heal people. So I grew up with a deep interest in politics and also in medicine. Uh, so when I came to the United States, uh, those things were within me. So by the time I was 14, because of my interest in medicine, I knew you had to work very hard in academics. I had, yeah. um, I had finished calculus by the age of 14. My parents, by the way, mm -hmm. moved from Patterson, then to Clifton, then to Precipity, then to Livingston. By the way, if you look at those zip codes, um, the property taxes get higher and the, and the school systems get better. Right. And those are basically all public school systems. My parents really didn't like the concept of private school. They thought it was somewhat disingenuous. Okay, uh, so so by the time I was 14, I'd finished up calculus. I worked very hard, you know? And uh, I ended up getting accepted to a special computer science program at New York University when I was a 14-year-old kid. And, uh, so were uh, you taking like a train into the city of New York? I did. So in the summer, I, at the, so think about this. My parents would, my they mom would drop me off you. at 6 a.m. Well, you're talking about in the 70s when you know, kids were allowed to travel. Nowadays, people are oh, right, afraid yeah. to send their kids anywhere. Down the I used street. to take the yeah. train from Newark into the heart of um, wa you know, Washington Street, right. Bleecker Street, where mm -hmm. NYU is, where people would be selling drugs oh, and everything. Yeah, sure. And I'd walk through there as a kid, go to class. It was 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. I graduated top of the class in this very intensive, it was almost like a Navy SEAL-like computer program. Academically class. speaking, though, right. Okay. Academically speaking. I right. uh, graduated top of that, and now I still had some high school courses left. So my high school uh, teacher, a woman, an incredible woman, changed the rules so I could finish up my high school courses and then travel to Newark where I'd gotten a full-time job working as a research fellow at a small medical college which is now part of Rutgers University. So at age 15, you were a research 14, fellow? 14, at age 14. Do you, you know the TV show Doogie Howser? I don't know. Okay. I, 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 I think I've seen it now. But, but you got to understand, I played baseball. Okay, I mowed lawns. Okay. I was, uh, you know, played soccer. Our, our school was a, one of the biggest divisions uh, undefeated soccer team. I played okay. center half. Okay. So the, thi the notion is my parents felt that you should do both, my dad particularly, academics as well as sports. It was, okay. uh, you know, what we've done in this country more recently is we've pigeonholed people oh, if you do well in math, you must be a nerd, and you can't obviously throw a baseball, right? right? And inversely, if you throw a baseball and you're a jock, you can't be smart. And, 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 no and the media has a lot to do with this whole celebrity culture, pigeonholes people. It's, it's a longer discussion, but mm -hmm. yes, I did both. Okay. Um, but I started working full-time. I'd work 8 to 16-hour days while I was doing high school, and I was given a very interesting challenge. Wow. Uh, many uh, people over the age of 40 will know, and this is 1978, uh, here in this medical school, like in most organizations, organizations commuted to, uh, you know, uh, communicated two ways in those days, right? right? One was they used the phone, the landline phone, right? right? And the other was they had this very interesting thing called the inter-office mail system. Okay. And the inter-office mail system, uh, every office was a secretary, mm -hmm. and she had a physical desktop to those people who don't know there was a physical desktop. And on that desktop was an inbox, an outbox. Right. 
file folders. Underneath was a trash can. Right. On the table was a thing called a typewriter with a, um, you know, a typewriter, which right. you would He's put paper into. And on the paper, you'd write a thing <laughs> called a memo. And the memo had a very particular structure to, from, Dig. subject. You would put sometimes carbon paper to do a carbon copy of that memo. Mm -hmm. And then you'd have little paper clips where you had attachments. If you were going to hire someone, um, you know, you would use the inner office mail system. You would write a cover letter, dear Joan mm -hmm. or Larry, we're thinking of hiring this person. You'd write a memo. You'd attach their resume, and you'd pass it around. You'd forward it. I was asked to convert that entire system in 1978 into the electronic version. Now, albeit there were simple ways you could do simple text messages, mm -hmm. that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. We're talking about converting that entire system every feature into the electronic version, which the military-industrial complex had thought impossible, by the way, at that time. Mm -hmm. But I didn't wow. think it was impossible. Because, by the way, many of these intellectual elites considered women and secretaries sort of not capable of handling the computer. You know, they had their own elitist <laughs> attitudes. So my goal was to move the secretary from the uh, typewriter to the keyboard. So I wrote 50,000 lines of software code, converted every feature in that inner so office mail system, oh. and I called that system email a term never used in the English language. And several years later, I got the first United States copyright, officially recognizing me as the inventor of email, because in those days, the only way to protect software was through copyright. Right. Then right. I went off to MIT, in and out of there. I did a bunch of degrees, started many companies, produced lots of jobs in Massachusetts. Going to MIT, is that what brought you to this state? Yeah, and it's interesting. My journey to MIT was interesting. I went to a high school. Uh, which was one of the wealthiest high schools. We started from the poorest high school to the wealthiest. Uh, I think there was a thousand, close to a thousand kids in my graduating class, 4,000 kids in that high school. Um, and I, I was top of the class. No one ever told me about MIT. In, in those days, you got, you got to understand, I went to a predominantly Jewish high school, and no one should take this the wrong way, but we were the Indian kids. No one had, you know, me and my sister were the two dark-skinned Indian kids. And the notion was that, you know, these kids can't be smart, right? Um, mm. There were, you know, yeah. so no one ever advised me. No one even told me about MIT. No so one told me. How do you know to put your application there? Does someone it, finally pull you aside? This is a very interesting oh, yeah. story. My my dear mom, who's an amazing woman, mathematician, right? Yeah, she's the one. Um, she had helped these two women who didn't have a place to stay. One of them had gotten divorced from her husband, okay. was kicked out, and she was at I think the local A and P in those days, Stop and Shop, and they right, were. Sure, and she yeah. said, "Why don't you stay? We have a place." Mm -hmm. So these two women stayed there. One of them had a friend, and he came to my home two weeks before I had to apply. He goes, why don't you apply to this place? And he had the brochure. I go, what is this? He, he says, it's called the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's the leading technology institute in the world. And I said, I've never heard of this. <laughs> so uh, I didn't apply because I, I just wanted to actually do design and do carpentry. I think I'd applied to a local <laughs> school. Wow. Yeah, so I was, like, I had programmed computers. I was sort of done with that, you know? Okay. And this guy came again and again, and he wouldn't leave, I think, two days before the application was due until I would apply. He wouldn't leave my home. So I took a pencil, and I filled it out, uh, submitted it, and uh, I got accepted. And then my high school says, oh, yeah, we should have told you about that. Because remember, they get points when a student gets accepted into these big universities. What so do you mean a, points? Explain that. I well, a, that. Uni a high school's eminence is by how many of his graduates oh, sure. go to okay. big Oh, sure. Okay, how many get into an Ivy. Yeah. Okay, I get so that. So MIT is, by the way, not part of the Ivy system. It's Technically. It's, it's sep separate. So when I came to MIT, I remember coming for the visit. I remember still walking up the steps of 77 Mass 7. I saw these kids who looked completely unhealthy to me. 
you know, with these huge knapsacks. You <laughs> Very know, heavy backpacks. They wore them on both shoulders. Yeah, <laughs> and they bent over, and I was into athletics, and, yeah. you know, and I said, these guys look crazy. Pasty. <laughs> I, yeah, I said, this whole place looks crazy, and I didn't want to go. Ah. Okay. And um, my physics teacher said, oh, no, 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 you should go because, you know, forget about MIT. You like Boston. It's like the Athens of the world. Really? Right? So that's what convinced me to come, you know, wanting to be in a city. Okay. Um, so, so that's why I came. So it's almost very, very fortuitous um, yeah, that I, I ended up at MIT and, mm -hmm. and uh, came. I had enough credits to graduate MIT, I think, in two and a half years. Oh my goodness. But I ended up getting very, very interested in politics. I want to understand why the caste system existed. Right. I studied with a guy called Noam Chomsky, who many people consider yes. far oh, yes. lefty. Yeah. Uh, and I've discovered why the caste system came from. I went back and unraveled Indian history all the way back to the 8th century. Okay. Uh, traced it. Uh, at MIT, a lot of my students were not the Indian, uh, my, my friends were not the Indian students. Those students had come from India, the mm -hmm. higher caste Brahmins, would right. always try to figure out my name, my last oh. name, because you can tell your caste. So my friends at MIT were Hispanic students who came from the inner cities, my black students and poor whites. I felt more kinship with them. In those days, in 1981 at MIT, right. uh, the affirmative action programs were still being put into place. Right. And the students that came to MIT were actually inner city kids, right. not the bourgeois you know, right. minorities that you see today. These were kids from like El Paso, Texas, right. or Chicanos from East LA, right. who were very disadvantaged. MIT had brought them in, and, and their high school systems were horrible. Right. So those became my friends, and I started becoming an activist because I saw, I saw the, the liberal hypocrisy at MIT. We mm -hmm. started a student newspaper called The Student, and we started agitating at MIT. Mm -hmm. Our newspaper was a eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, mm -hmm. printed two sides, mimeographed. Oh, wow, that's and interesting. And I, I, I moved to Dorchester, and a, and a, a guy uh, who was in Dorchester was a former librarian. Right. Um, had a mimeograph machine, and we'd be there printing oh, copies, like right old mimeograph, <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah. we'd get out in the morning at MIT, and we would distribute these. Our little eight and a half by 11, because of the politics, became more powerful than the student newspaper, which was like 30 pages. And right. what were our politics? My politics was pretty mature at that time. At, I think it was 18, 19, okay. was saying that both Democrats and Republicans are full of BS. They both represent the establishment. And the reason I'd figured this out at that early age was because there was a guy called Jesse Jackson, you may remember, was running in 1984 sure, mm -hmm. yep. against Walter Mondale, right. was a Democrat, Reagan was the Republican. Right. And here was this guy, Jesse Jackson, saying that he was against the establishment, right? right. He was doing the Rainbow Coalition. Mm -hmm. right. And if you remember, so we as activists were very encouraged, why wow, this is pretty cool, he's against the yeah, establishment. It's intriguing at first right. place, yeah. But then at the last minute, if you remember, Jesse Jackson gives all of his votes to Walter uh, Mondale. Right. Okay. Who has been running against? Who was running against Reagan? Well, he was running against Bondale, but then ends up giving all his votes. All his votes, yeah. So that's when I realized I started studying uh, politics more deeper. Right. And you find out that uh, in all political uh, dynamics, there's always been three interesting forces okay. the establishment, people want to keep things the way they are. Right. The change agents, people are typically truly grassroots, out building a grassroots movement. Mm -hmm. You look at the women's movement, it wasn't done by the Democrats. Right. They laughed Susan B. Anthony out of the house, right? They yeah. thought it was ridiculous. She went and organized the movement. Civil rights wasn't, wasn't you know, Martin Luther King per se, it was people's names we don't know. Right. And it's change agents. But then there's a much more insidious element 
which I called the not-so-obvious establishment. Some people call it social democracy. These are the people who act as though they're with these movements, but they actually are part of the establishment. So and they're like very insidious. Clothing, then, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Mm -hmm, so okay. so uh, that's why, I, so uh, we hit upon that, which is a gold mine of truth, that for if you tr start looking at where change comes from, yeah. it's never come from the establishment or the not-so-obvious establishment. Right. It's always come from people on the real. streets. Yeah. Okay. And so in the last election, for example, that's why I never voted at all, and I'm proud of that. Mm -hmm. But when Trump ran was the first time I voted ever in my life because I... Wow. I, okay. Yeah. So yeah. I have a very pure voting record, you know, <laughs> unlike, you know, these guys who, you know... So what drew you to Trump? What drew us to... Well, he was anti-establishment, truly anti-establishment. And uh, so in my view, here was Hillary Clinton, Clearly right. the establishment candidate. Oh, for certain, yes. Look, at she had Romney, the Clintons, the Bushes, and uh, all, and the Obamas, right? And Department of Justice and FBI. Everyone, everyone. So you had this person who was a clearly the establishment candidate. Machine. And, o and yeah. over here, where the everyday working people were tired of this nonsense. But remember, who was a not-so-obvious, uh, the really insidious, evil part of this? I, I put the not-so-obvious establishment, even more evil than the establishment, was Bernie Sanders. Here Bernie Sanders runs, and a lot of my friends call me up, Shiva, you should vote for Bernie. He's really, I said, he's going to do exactly what Jesse Jackson did. Is push his vote. He's going to give all of his votes to Walter Mondale. And the not-so-obvious establishment exists, and they exist on both sides, right. on the left and the right. Mm -hmm. You know, right now in Massachusetts, but anyway, with yeah. Bernie Sanders, the goal was to take all the energy um, off the people who were really upset and and. Bernie was using the words revolution, hope, change. They always have these very interesting rhetoric. Yeah. But, at, but the goal is to suck it back into the establishment and say, you know what? We have to choose a lesser of two evils. This is what the not-so-obvious establishment is clever at. Right. And here was Trump, who was truly the agent of change. Um, and he was not part of any of these groups. And, he was, and, and the reason I knew that was he was attacking the media. When you attack the media on a national platform, that's what got me excited about him and the fact that he was attacking both parties. So I said, whether, forget Donald Trump, because I don't know him as a person, right. but what he was doing was historic. And that's why I decided to vote for him. Now, in Massachusetts, you have the same phenomenon. I'll tell you what's going on right now, the same thing. All the people who voted for Donald Trump were not Republicans, sorry to say, you know. Yeah. They were, 80% of them were independents. Mm -hmm. uh, you had Charlie Baker, whatever he is, he calls himself a Republican, but he essentially told people not to vote for Trump. And so when it, what's happened right now in Massachusetts, two million people voted for Hillary, the one million that voted for Trump, 80% were independents. Only 20% of Republican them Party. were Republicans. So now what the establishment is trying to do, they, you know, Massachusetts is known for innovation, right? But they are trying to innovate. Technologically, yes. But they, also are, but they also are trying to innovate this concept of a fake Trumper. And, you know, one guy we have out there photoshopped a picture with Trump. He's got his campaign manager who's a Saudi lobbyist. Mm -hmm. He endorses Baker before he doesn't. So what they want to do is suck all the energy out of the two true anti-establishment Trumpers mm -hmm. and bring it back into Behind Baker. Behind that Baker. candidate. Okay. Yeah. That's what they're trying to do. Okay. And that's, you know, you have, uh, that's what this guy, we call him Dirty Deal, mm -hmm. you know? And oh, he's the insidious oh. equivalent of Bernie Sanders. I do want to get into that, but I yep. wonder if we could just go back a little bit more about to your background. So I know you have some business ex uh, experience expertise. Definitely. 
and uh, something to share there as well. Yeah, I have. Yeah, so so you could bucket my expertise as you know uh, in political history and as an activist. The other is I'm an inventor and a scientist. You know, I've had to solve problems all my life. I've been doing that since I was 14. You know, email was actually solving an office problem. Right. And it wasn't done by the military-industrial complex. People don't and like unlike to hear that. Al Gore, you actually have a genuine patent. Yeah, Al Gore doesn't do anything. I mean, this guy's <laughs> a complete liar. I don't know what he does. He's, uh, I don't know what he's trained in. But I actually have four degrees from MIT, right. have put in the time, didn't lie to get, those you know, get into MIT, unlike right. Elizabeth Warren, who lied on her application. But, yeah. uh, but I've been in and out of MIT, but I was always starting businesses. Okay. Uh, academia was uh, something that enabled me to get into certain areas, but I always go start a business. So when I, uh, after I finished my undergraduate um, in electrical engineering, mm -hmm. okay. I then was a one of the early engineers in a company that was a predecessor to PowerPoint. You, you may know this company called Lotus. Yeah. We did yeah. Freelance, which is a graphic piece mm -hmm. for Lotus. I was one of the senior engineers, okay. and that company then got bought by Lotus and then IBM. Okay. Um, and then I came back to MIT okay. and did my master's in mechanical engineering, and then also at, at the Media Lab in design, I work with uh, Muriel Cooper, who's known as a grand dame of design. I would have been an artist if I didn't grow up in an engineering family. Interesting. Okay. Wow. Uh, so I still do all of our graphic design for our campaign. You know, okay. we, don't, we don't use others. It's, uh, I'll take well, you must like your own work. I, I do. So. <laughs> I do love my own work. Um, we do the meme, you know, the fake Indian, real Indian. That's, that comes right from us. But anyway, um, I did that. And in the middle of doing that work, um, I started a company uh, to one of the early... Uh, companies put artists on the, a lot of my friends were artists called Arts Online out of a company mm -hmm. called Millennium Productions. Interesting. And then uh, we put Boston Ballet, all these, I mean this is in 1992, 1993. We used to give seminars telling people WWW is going to be big, everyone's going to have a website, people would look at, look at us with their eyes crossed. I used to give lectures to a room of people where only two out of a thousand people would have an email address. Because remember email didn't become a consumer application until after 92, 93. It was oh, well basically after, a business yeah. application. AOL, yeah. Think about it. It was a business application, and right. you don't need the at sign, any of that. So right. um, we started that company, and then while I was doing that, I was uh, at MIT doing my research in artificial intelligence, and I won a competition to analyze President Clinton's email. In 93, email volume starts growing yeah. for the Clinton White House, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, Yahoo, Hotmail was coming. Pe right. And they were getting 5,000 emails a day. It was doubling. And the White House runs a competition to see are there artificial intelligence technologies which should read the email and automatically bucket it. Because the way they were doing it was they had 147 categories for their physical letters. When, they, when an email came in, they would print it out. And then they would bucket it into one of these 147 categories. And they'd write back a form letter. And they had interns doing this. And probably shouldn't use the word interns with Clinton, but that's what, that's what. A room full yeah, of interns. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Both a genders. room full of interns. Right. But anyway, so they were looking for technologies to automatically categorize. I was a, a graduate student. There were six other public companies. Okay. I ended up winning that competition oh. and left MIT. My uh, lawyer said, Shiva, you can always start, do your PhD. And the, m do you remember, 93 is when the internet was taking off. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So I leave MIT, much to the chagrin of my parents. Oh, it was they a must big have been thing. heartbroken. They're like, get that third degree. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a fourth degree, my PhD, oh, okay. right? So I leave, and I start this company called EchoMail. It's my third company, which would automatically read an email, and we could analyze it, okay. and completely bootstrap that company. Mm -hmm. We went and negotiated with the mayor of Cambridge, and he gave us a small space in the Arts Center. For the Arts Center, we built their website. Okay. I wrote a book. In the back of the book, uh, I gave a company called MCI Advertising. They gave us free internet. The whole thing was bootstrapped. 
Okay, wow, okay. Pure, we didn't take any VC funding. Right. And then Echo Mail starts taking off. We start getting AT&T as our first customer, then Nike and Citigroup. Mm -hmm. Built it to a multi-million mm -hmm. dollar company. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, about 250 million in value. Right. Um, not one venture capital funding at all. Okay. Wow. Mm -hmm. I made a ton of money doing that. And then uh, was walking back to MIT one day, and my advisor at MIT said, Shiva, you should come back and finish your PhD. And this new field was coming called systems biology which is could you understand the body as a system, which is what my grandmother was doing, mm -hmm. right, in India. Uh, but this was right. about what happened was a genome project that just ended, if you remember, in 2003. Mm -hmm. We realized that we have the same number of genes as a worm. We have around 20,000 genes. Mm -hmm. We don't have 100,000 genes. So what makes a human being actually different than a worm is the molecular reactions that take right. place. So the goal was could you mathematically model the human cell? Mm -hmm. And so I came back to MIT, did my mm -hmm. PhD five years in that, took time off, and created this very powerful technology called Cytosolve, um, which that. is used, we, we can mathematically model cancer on the computer, okay. and we're, we in fact used it to test a combination of drugs, and we discovered a dual combination therapy mm -hmm. that we got allowed by the FDA. Uh, How long did that take? Uh, we did that in 11 months. So wow. we have a, so when people talk about we gotta fight healthcare, none of these guys, Obama particularly doesn't know what healthcare is really about. Uh, none of the politicians do. We actually have to lower the cost, and that's going to come through innovation. It's not going to come um, by the big insurance companies. It's not going to come from the big hospitals. It's or yet another merger. <laughs> another merger, yeah. Partners Healthcare so, yeah, becomes so, uh, yeah, so, yeah. so my point is I did many things beyond yeah. the invention of email. Cytosolve is on its road to become a very large multi-billion dollar company. Mm -hmm. In parallel, I have a, another institute I've started called Systems Health where we retrain MDs, yoga teachers on integrating Eastern and Western medicine. Oh, and then I have a small nonprofit called Innovation Corps uh, where we select you know, three to eight students each year, age 14 through 18. And uh, we give them a little bit of money, recognize them if they need mentorship so they can also innovate like I did back when I was so you're trying 14. To, there's four to eight people, you're mini sheepers. <laughs> well, the goal <laughs> is there's a lot idea. of smart kids that sure. are in the 14 through 18 year old, and, and, and they don't all go to MIT, they're all over the world. Wonderful. Yeah. If we move on a little bit from the businesses, what made you want to run for U.S. Senate? Uh, you know, it's a good question. For me, it was a natural outgrowth of being a political activist. Okay. If you look at, you know, there's this one aspect of me as an, uh, you know, um, inventor scientist and as an entrepreneur, you know, writing papers as an inventor right. scientist, publishing, entrepreneur starting companies. But the other thing has always been there is this activist or fighter right. for people. You know, f not only from MIT, when I got my graduate degree uh, at MIT, my PhD, you'll see I, I held up this huge poster which said U.S. out of Iraq as I was getting my PhD. Mm -hmm. Half the crowd booed me and the other half gave me a standing ovation. Yeah. Remember, this was at a time it was not popular to yeah. say anything against Iraq, you know, right. and I said U.S. out of Iraq. Um, more recent than after that, I used the technology I created for modeling the cell yeah. to actually expose Monsanto, as you may know, is one of the most, uh, is a huge company which has poisoned essentially the food supply in this country. They're a big herbicide creator of glyphosate, Roundup. Right. Roundup. They're the ones who created with Dow, uh, Agent Orange, which destroyed not only the Vietnamese, foliage, but also a lot of our veterans. Mm -hmm. Otherwise known as genetically modified food. They're genetically also modified food, yes. Yeah, so Monsanto. They're, they're one of the few. Yeah, I so Monsanto created pesticides, mm -hmm. uh, which kill weeds, right? right. Mm -hmm. But they also started killing the crops, and then they created their own genetically modified version to of withstand. crops to withstand them. So Around they own both the sides. 
So if you talk to farmers out in the Midwest, et cetera, uh, Monsanto now part of Bayer, because they've been hit so hard because of work like mine and other activists, right. they put themselves under the Bayer, branded, under children's, yeah. Yeah, to get to hide their ba bad brand. But so that, I published a series of papers in 2014, 15. Uh, um, and, and then, you know, about several years ago, yeah. um, a lot of my work went into the Smithsonian. I never got wanted credit for the invention of email. When my mom was dying several years ago, in a suitcase, she left all the artifacts that went into the Smithsonian, and it created this very interesting, unfortunate controversy um, uh, where people, uh, uh, when it went, the day it went into the Smithsonian, yeah. you had the people from the military industrial academic complex, a lot of liberals, yeah. who could not believe that a, a dark skinned American kid in Newark invented email. You see, that throws a wrench into their narrative that you have to go to big institutions to create great things. Okay. Right? So when that happened, Gawker Media wrote this article calling me a fraud and all sorts of four-letter words. Horrible names, trying to defame yeah. me. Here, I've got four degrees from MIT, started companies overnight. You have this company trying to uh, basically, yes, we have the First yes, Amendment. Yeah. yeah, but the First Amendment does not allow you to defame and libel someone. Right. It's not even about the invention of email. Fraud right. is a criminal term, right? Right. Mm -hmm. right. Um, oh, so, yeah. w you know, so I saw that thing moved me to realize that in America we have a caste system. You see, as long as I was part of MIT, I was on the front page of MIT for many things while I was there. Right. Inventing Echo Mail, getting my Fulbright. But when the stuff went into the Smithsonian, and the facts came out that it was like a new skull was found in Africa that right. it reset the origin of history. Oh, yeah, right. That the fact Been is email order. wasn't done by the military industrial complex. That's a lie. Because w for far too long in American history, we've been brainwashed to think we fund the military and we get Velcro and Tang, which, by the way, didn't come out of the military. Right? Right. Basically, you, there's basically peacetime aspects to, like, the war machine and what was right. created. Right. Yeah, what they try to do is they try to say, oh, fund war and be happy that you get email. Well, or the Jeep. E <laughs> yeah, or <laughs> email didn't come out of the military. Right. It came from a 14-year-old kid solving an office problem, a civilian problem. By the right. way, a 14-year-old kid invented TV. So th this is the deeper thing that got me motivated mm -hmm. because when you peel away the layers, okay. there is a concept of a deep state. There is a concept of elites the caste system. You know, my parents left the caste system in India, but right. I can tell you to everyone listening, we have a caste system in this country, and it's unfortunate. And the epicenter of that is Harvard University. You know, and you can look at the one mile distance between MIT and Harvard, that is the epicenter of the deep state, and that's a, 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 a insight very few people can talk about, and I can talk about that as a scientist, as an inventor, as an activist. So when you ask me what motivates me to want to run, I think that is one of the most destructive things to, to America, because it's a set of elites like Elizabeth Warren, like Charlie Baker, like Mitt Romney, Republican and Democrat establishment, that they think they know better. When the truth is, I know you know better. Everyday people from the time you got up, Larry, or you got up, Joan, right. you made a hundred decisions for yourself without the state being involved. These people think that they know better. Like they know better uh, where innovation comes from. Right? You right. must go to MIT and get branded. Now, the problem they have with me is I got all their four degrees, but email wasn't invented by MIT. Right. Or it was done in Newark, New Jersey. And there's many innovations. There's a lot of smart people in this country. And what, what these people have done, when I say these people, I can tell you exactly where they are. Right. You know, I can tell you the latitude and longitude. It's not theory to me. Mm -hmm. And that set of elites, like Elizabeth Warren, believe that they can control narratives. And this is very destructive to this country. 
And what they've done is on anything you take, they're the ones who draw the little bounds mm -hmm. and then they bound the discussion within that. Right. And then if you go out of those bounds, they start calling you all sorts of names and labeling you. Right. And you know, we were discussing earlier before the show started about racism. You know, right. a bunch of people, white liberals at Harvard University, and some of you listening, you should listen carefully, because you don't, you don't own the narrative on racism. They've said, don't use the N-word, right? And, you know, whether you use a Confederate flag or not, you know, and you change Yawkey way, now you've bounded racism. That's, to them, if you do all that, we've solved racism. You exonerate yourself. You almost exactly, absolve yourself exactly. from sin. And, and the reality is, mm -hmm. I can tell you as a dark-skinned Indian guy who's been called all sorts of names, mm -hmm. right, that you don't know what racism is. They don't. These people are, in fact, the racists. They've drawn the bounds and they want to keep people on a plantation. Right. So, for example, I go to the um, you know, free speech rally. Yeah, let's talk about that. Right? <laughs> right. I, uh, I, I put a headdress on Elizabeth Warren's head, right? With a meme next to me and her, and I call her a fake Indian. Um, I don't back down from the invention of email, right? So I'm called a fraud, I'm called a white nationalist, I'm called a Nazi. You see how they work? These right. people are absolutely the racist. They call Al Gore a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They gave him a Nobel. They, I think they gave him a Nobel Prize, right? <laughs> right. Right, because he fits their narrative. Correct. So what I want to tell everyone is Elizabeth Warren is the racist. Harvard University is the architect of modern racism in this country. Just look, three miles from Elizabeth Warren's house, Boston. The average net worth of a black person in Boston is eight dollars. Eight dollars mm. by the Federal Reserve. Okay. So what are you talking about? And what is the average net worth of a poor white person in this country? No one talks about that. No one talks about the fact that their infant mortality is exploding higher than any other country, mm. right? So what we've done is you have um, racists like Howie Carr who uses the poor working class to point the picture at minorities, mm -hmm. blacks. You have the Boston Globe, who by the way put the three pictures of the three white candidates left my picture out when I was the first one to run, who's also racist because they want to control who is considered a good liberal. The narrative. Right. And they point the finger at poor whites. And I, I can see this clearly. So what we have is race war in this country, perpetrated by these Howie Carr sells books, right? And these people uh, have the right to call people white supremacists. These people right. can say someone's a wife beater, right? A dark-skinned guy beats white women. Right. You see how they, how they do this? And that's what we have in this country. We have the Republicans and Democrat establishment, you know, run and split and divide this country by race. But when we're out on the road out there, you ask me why I run, ran? Mm -hmm. yeah. Because I grew up with poor villagers in India, but I grew up with everyday working class people in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. you, know, I, you know, I learned how to paint, I learned how to landscape from hardworking Americans. My mentors, my school teachers, my coaches. So I know, you know, I'm a, I'm a worker. I'm a still, a, I came from, a, I'm a work, I consider myself a high-tech worker. I still work. I get up at four and I go to bed at 12 solving problems. And I am really angry and very upset and a lot, so are a lot of Americans, mm -hmm. blacks and whites, against what they see in this two-party system. And we have an opportunity with my running to declare our independence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've always done the impossible. My parents did the impossible. People said inventing email was the impossible. But I want to ask everyone out there that you have the chance to break free, break your chains from this two-party system. Right. They do not deserve the American working people anymore. They haven't earned it. They haven't earned it. And, and what's really insidious is this. This is how they operate, is that the 
you know, who think they work by moving money from one bank account to another, mm -hmm. right? That's how that they consider that work, mm -hmm. make a lot of money, living off other people's labor. Mm -hmm. Those people also incent another group of people not to work, okay? Mm -hmm. Welfare, right? Don't work hard, free stuff. Right. So working people are being sandwiched by two sets of leeches. That's what's actually going on. There's a reason that gangs don't, you know, we don't go after MS-13. There's a reason that we have illegal immigration. There's a reason that these people are armed. Because my view is that the enemies of the working people are both these people at the extremes. Right. And so this is, in my view, very, very well architected. So, you, so the people at the 0.1% who frankly don't work a lot want to incent other people not to work because they're their protection in some ways. And the Almost everyday, they exactly, they're squeezing the everyday worker. And what we need is uh, to recognize that it's not a leader that's going to change this country. It's not going to be a party. It's going to be everyone recognizing it's their fight. You know, people recognizing that they should declare their independence. People waking up, basically. People waking up and recognizing to somebody it. somebody telling them. Yeah, we determine our destiny like my parents did. You know, they told us, you know, if you were a janitor in the Indian caste system, you're going to be a janitor and your son and sons are going to be janitors if, if you're in a... But that's not what this country is about. No, you can, but you can be self-made if you educate yourself. Exactly. You epitomize that. So, Dr. Lemieux... Well, that's what, uh, that's what America is supposed to be about. Right. And if we don't, if we... And I think the Trump victory... Uh, whether people like it or not, was an important and necessary disruption. Because what it's done, it's, it's opened up a, a window in history for people like me to run. And that's the opportunity people have. Not to vote for me, but to stand up for themselves. That's what they have the opportunity. And that's why I'm running as an independent. That's why we dumped the Republican Party. You know, we gave them a shot. I used to get standing ovations. You guys can see it at Cape Cod. Right. You know? But the Republican Party, you know, wants... They have three sets of people that they want to run. Baker has a deal with Dirty Deal, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's all an insider's game. That's, you know, that's not American. These people are not American, and I think people are tired of that. I think that would just take a little bit more of a discussion to uh, say what you meant by Dirty Deal. But if we could just go on. When you get to Washington, yeah. what will you be doing to change the issue that you've just addressed and just talked about? What, about Dirty Deal? No, no. <laughs> about the caste system that we have in this country, about or the racism. racism that we have well, in this first country yeah. that we don't even recognize. Yeah, so for, it's a great question. What's your question. first priority, Dr. Look, Sheba, look for, first priority is uh, the founders of this country never wanted career politicians. That's why they yeah. never enumerated in the Constitution, because they, are, they all had jobs. Washington was a surveyor. Right. He, he ran a farm business. You know, they never Everybody thought some, back to yeah, they, they never, someone wanted to be so dirty and just want to run for, for politics all day. That wasn't a career. You, it was a service. So number one, term limits, you know? Okay. I think, and term limits and, and putting in procedure that when, uh, when I say term limits, I'm talking about also for all these lobbyists. You know, what Trump is trying to do now is there's 10,000, 20,000 functionaries in the government mm -hmm. who are there whether who gets elected or not. There's a whole civil service infestation in there. So right. forget which president comes and goes. It doesn't matter. And he's trying to bust that up. So you need to go after that. The second thing we need to do is, you know, when you look at healthcare, I know what healthcare is about. I mean, I've studied it. You know, mm -hmm. the biggest thing you have to understand healthcare is that it's not about single payer or non-single payer. Right. The the fundamental thing with healthcare is you have to lower the cost. Right. I mean, you have to, and we're selling a fifty cents hamburger for half a million dollars. That's literally what's going on. And right. and and if people understood that the big insurance companies, the big hospitals, and big right. pharma. 
that triangle right. actually wants to keep costs high because they want you to pay higher premiums. Right. You know, 10% increase in premiums, companies are making billions, right? Insurance right. companies had record profits last year. Sure. So that collusion occurs to make sure drug prices are kept way high. Right. And, and I'll tell you one concrete thing. There's people called GPOs, group purchasing organizations. Starting in 1990, they started getting kickbacks. Meaning, to put it simply, if here's the drug manufacturer okay. and here's where you get your drug, right. between them to here, the GPOs are the middlemen who write these contracts. Right. And they're allowed to give kickbacks to hospital administrators, vacations, etc. Okay. It's legalized corruption. And so that raises a... If a, a medical doctor and a hospital writes X amount of prescriptions for, say, They have all different things, that, and those yeah. contracts are so opaque, but it's close to a half a trillion dollars. Wow. Okay? Those need to be made completely illegal and shut down. That's the first bill. Would, Elizabeth would you, Warren knows about this, and, and she, she has not done anything about it. N none of these guys have done anything about it, right. but that's the first thing that's to be done. How did I learn about it? Because right. I actually talked to doctors. And they're frustrated. Yeah. They're frustrated. If you go to hospitals right now, many hospitals or a number of hospitals yeah. are finding it hard to even get saline. Okay? There are Salt standard fire. drugs which are, you can't even, these GPOs control the flow. So if you don't want to play with them, they'll shut you down your supply. Wow. So the insidious nature of the GPOs, very few people, it's not it's even like discussed a, like in the news. It's like a naval blockade 200 huh? years ago. It's like a naval exactly. blockade 200 so those, years ago. So, so those need to be shut down. We need wow. to really take the NIH, you know, the National Institute of Health. Health right? The whole way NIH and how funding occurs for science is completely corrupt because you have big academic organizations. Right the big journals where science is so-called created or made, right. and the NIH. Well, the NIH, if you're a young researcher at a small state university, you apply for funding, right. well, it's probably very unlikely you're going to even get it because you're not part of that clique. Right. So 70% of the NIH funding for so-called new innovative research goes to Harvard, goes to MIT, et cetera. Right. It doesn't go to innovative research. Right. So we don't really have medical innovation taking place. Right. So we need to take the NIH, in my views, at least... 25%, 30% of the funding needs to go to alternative research. There's amazing herbs. There's amazing new alternative medicine that have been used for thousands of years. Right. I'm not talking about woo-woo stuff. Right. I'm talking about actual stuff that needs to be researched. Right. You know? So why aren't we funding prevention? Um, organic farms, local farms. We need to incent young people to go into farming. The average age of a farmer now is 62 years old. Right, they're dying out. They're dying out. Uh, we need to have more Votech schools. It's one, you know, MIT is basically a Votech school. It doesn't matter what happens to me. I still know how to program software. I know how to fix an engine. I can always have a job, right? Politicians can't. We need to have more Votech schools. You want to solve racism? Let's start putting two, three, four Votech schools in every inner city and get people, plumbers, electricians, software engineers. Well, it's impossible to find good plumber. It's one of those things for everybody who's a doctor and lawyer. Like, I the, the wrong profession. The, 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 the <laughs> average, I don't know if you know, for every 17 high-tech job openings in Massachusetts, only one person is skilled. Wow. So think about that. So what have all these politicians been doing? In Massachusetts, I mean, there's more than, more than 200 colleges and universities Exactly. In so what are they Academics creating? Academics is our product. Right. So what we're creating, we're creating kids yeah. who have massive debt. Yes. Uh, they, uh, yeah, they're unbridled with debt and they have no skills. So, so, and if you really look at Massachusetts overall, we, we're known as the worst in public integrity, which means really high in corruption, mm. uh, one of the worst public infrastructures, T, highways, et cetera, right. and three times the national average in opioid addiction. This is what the quote-unquote swamp of politicians have delivered. And they don't, by the way, want to solve opioids. 
there's a solution that's already out there. We have a guy, a Dr. Kishore, on our staff mm -hmm. who actually helped 250,000 people, mm -hmm. you know, with an in-home detox solution, a holistic approach, mm -hmm. and Martha Coakley put him in jail. Okay? Oh, my gosh. So Private these people do not want to solve opioids. Uh, Mitt Romney, I don't, I don't know what words to describe him that, you know, that, that, that you, you won't be able to broadcast, but this guy created, he used Bain Capital to aggregate the methadone clinics and flipped them and made another $750 million, okay? So they don't want to solve opioids. It's a swamp economy. And so when you ask me what I'm going to do in Washington, first, mm -hmm. no one talks about this. No one is on the bully pulpit. Elizabeth Warren is just talking about, in name only, I'm going to fight for you. She doesn't bring up any of these issues. No. She, she's at uh, Harvard, which is the biggest hedge fund. She has never, ever exposed Harvard. She's taken millions from Harvard. Mm -hmm. So you're going to look at someone who's going to use that pulpit, the 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 value of what a representation means and talk about these right. issues on and a national level. To, you know, represent populist views. Right, and really I think, that's, I, I think that's one of the most important things to do. Yeah. I, when I talk about policy, it's, I'm going to come from a standpoint, Larry, that I actually understand healthcare. I understand how medicine's created, you know? I understand civil engineering. I understand right. infrastructure, right? And, and many of these problems need to be, uh, the people need to be made aware that there are solutions right. and that these people actually don't want to solve them. Would you repeal the Monsanto Protection Act? Definitely. So, for people who don't know what that is, yes, you know, to educate people. yeah. So, uh, in a um, appropriations bill, they stuck in this thing, which has been known as the Monsanto Protection Act. Basically, Monsanto, this uh, chemical company which creates Roundup, et cetera, created right. Agent Orange with Dow. Um, if let's say the three of us find in our neighborhood in Burlington, okay. for example, that Monsanto's chemicals are hurting our children. Okay. And we file a lawsuit and we win in federal court. Wow, lucky us. And, and, and let's say the federal judges put an inju uh, injunction on Monsanto. Not to the use Mon the chemicals in the town of exactly. Burlington, henceforth. The, okay. federal, uh, uh, the federal court ruling can be overruled by the executive branch. Overruled. Now, this is unprecedented. That's true because it would normally go through the appellate process. Exactly. The First Circuit Court of Appeals and maybe exactly. up on social. Okay. So that's what Elizabeth sure, Warren okay. voted yay on. And everyone, and no one, if, if you don't believe this, just go look at Elizabeth Warren's vote on the Monsanto Protection Act. So here's a woman claiming she wants to help working people, but she basically voted uh, to allow a company to poison us. And so we could, uh, as citizens, not really take them through the proper appellate process. Right. That's what Elizabeth Warren did. She also voted against Bernie's GMO labeling bill. You're talking, Elizabeth Warren is fundamentally part of the not-so-obvious establishment. Right. She's perfect for them, right? Yeah. Uses all the language, you know, uh, uh, you know has the shtick, right? Oh, and she has that's, why, that's why we believe she needs to be uh, viscerally, in every way, completely disrespected. She needs to be disrespected. Yeah. Because I mean, you, these people probably gotten some flack on the campaign trail. Well, no, we don't. About we don't. People, Elizabeth Warren, but ninety percent of people like it. It's a vocal minority of people. Okay. And what's interesting is they all sort of behave the same, and they call me a racist, and they're typically white liberals. It's amazing. And then I call them a racist, and they don't know what to say. I said, "You're trying to tell me I'm a racist. You're the one who's a racist because you've bounded racism into a very small definition." And you're prejudging me. Yes. Right. Well, not only that, you don't even know what racism is. Your reaction to me is racist. Right. And when, when she, you know, takes a DNA test and she's willing to return her money to Harvard, then we will take the headdress off of her. But this is not, in fact, about race. It's about integrity. That's so they want to make it about race, but it's really about integrity. It's about someone who lied, took a minority's job. That's what this is about. That's racism.
She used affirmative action. It's racism. She's a racist. So racist Elizabeth Warren. That's what we should really call her. If we could talk a little bit more about health care, yeah. you'd be more open to these alternative type medicines, the, uh, the herbs, and other type of food type medicines. Well, well let me tell you. And, and how about things like uh, alternative medicines, like uh, spiritual type healings? Yes. So, so, so what I believe is, so, you know, I've studied this very carefully, you know, for years. You know, it's been one of my life's endeav endeavors since a child. There's two forms of medicine that, that exist. The modern system of healthcare that we have today, Larry and Joan, came out of wartime medicine around the 1800s. Mm -hmm. Florence Nightingale, by the way, wasn't just a, a nurse. She actually was the mother of modern medicine. She was recognized that soldiers in the Crimean War were not dying on the field, but when they came to the hospitals because they didn't have proper care. Infection. She designed, ex exactly. Infection. But the goal was to put a soldier back on the field. So we developed a whole system of medicine to quote unquote put the soldier back on the field. Crisis management medicine. So that type of medicine is phenomenal. You get your, God forbid you get your hand blown off. Right. We can do microsurgery. Right. You know, all of that stuff, right? Yeah. That is very different than this other form of medicine which was created in traditional systems of medicine where they observed, it was about health, it was about food, it was how you mixed foods, it was when you ate. I mean, it's a whole way of living in harmony with nature. Right. That's what I call the Eastern or traditional system of medicine. Preventative. Preventive, but both are needed. God forbid right. you have a major accident, right. you definitely need this. Right. But what we've done is, remember this is like the military medicine. Right. What we've done is we've- Passion put you back on the field. Exactly, but we've told everyone this system of medicine is what we all should be using. You follow what I'm saying? Right. It's like we're basically taking a bazooka to hit a hammer. Right. Okay? Or when a fly. <laughs> or a fly. I think it's a little worse than that because it's, this is the only acceptable form of medicine. It's the only acceptable. Have. Exactly. That your insurance company you, will you reimburse your, you for. You need your drugs. <laughs> you, know. you need you, your drugs. Yeah, so, so, the, so the racket is yeah. that big insurance makes money from keeping costs high because, God, because the way it works now is why do you get insurance? Why do we all have insurance? Oh my God, if something happens, I'm going to be hit with a huge bill. My family. Right. Be a so why is it going to wipe you out? Because the costs are way too high. Right. But suppose over here, we start educating people about how to eat. That organic food does. 80% of Americans want organic food. Right. You know, that's the facts. It, it's not a left or right issue anymore. And they even right. changed the definition of GMO foods, genetically modified foods. They're, you know, the FDA has come up with their own definition. Yeah, right, right, right. So, so what's hap fundamentally happening is the people out there, everyday people, want, I mean, what mother wants to poison their children? It's so fundamental, right? Nobody wakes up right? Morning, so wants to poison themselves. They poison themselves. Right. So here you have a company, Monsanto, which has made its mark by, you know, Agent Orange right. and now poisoning, and Elizabeth Warren supported them, right? Think about that. How can this woman claim any Democrat liberal, quote unquote, listening to this? Right. You know, this is where they start should blowing it. Should be incensed. Should, should be incensed. And that's why our campaign, they blow a chip in their brain because things don't compute for them because they live in these little, unfortunate little boxes. Um, so when you ask about healthcare, you know, we need to go back to the fundamentals, which is, you know, f let thy food be thy medicine. Right. It starts with that. Now, you won't find any of these politicians talking about this. It's not profitable. It's not profitable, but I will. And I think that the reality is, from an economic standpoint, it's a huge opportunity. Food is a $4.7 trillion business. Sure. Uh, technology business is four, four, um, uh, $400 billion. So it's a 10 times more business. Anyone listening, you want to make good money, go start an organic farm. 
30, 30%, 40% growth. We don't have enough organic products, right? right? Okay. So it's one of the most explosively growing uh, opportunities, right. and yet it's not even considered in the healthcare, quote-unquote, Affordable Health Care Act. It's right. complete nonsense. The Affordable Health Care Act was designed to make big hospitals bigger, big pharma bigger, and big insurance bigger, and yeah. destroy the local practitioner. Health in many ways is not only the herbs and you know whatever, but it's the one-on-one -on -one that you get with the practitioner right. and the patient. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a dual process. Mm -hmm. It's not top-down. It's dialogue. And we've lost 250,000 family practitioners over the last you know 20 years. They're just frustrated? They have to go join big hospitals. They, they can't run their because of the regulations, et cetera. So we've destroyed health in this country. So how do we bring it back? The, the How do we bring back health care? Well, the number one way we bring it back is uh, we need to have representatives who talk about what I just talked about at a national yeah, level. Yeah, you're the first person I've heard talking yeah, about no, this. No, no one is talking about where is the bill sponsored in Congress to basically completely, you know, uh, put together a series of uh, incentives to get people farming, local farms. You know, where is the bill to ensure that the NIH spends you know, 30, 40% of his budget on researching, you know. Right. I mean, you take an herb like turmeric, right? Right. Turmeric, okay. Turmeric, yeah. you know, uh, powerful herb, you know. Right. You know, it, it's in India, curry, which has turmeric, a set of spices, right. it was basically out of thousands of years is included in every food. Right. There, that's why Indians experience one-third less liver cancer, mm. okay? Oh, Nature okay. produces amazing products already, right? right. That's called food. Over here, we create synthetic drugs. I'm not saying you don't need them. You need them at certain points. At certain but points. food is ultimately medicine. Right. And if we started driving our healthcare policy from that operating system versus a pharma operating system, right. we're going to create a healthier country. Right. But you need to have intelligent people who have some sense talking about this, not people who are represented by big pharma. We're not right. talking about the elite type of. Uh, We're talking about informative. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, 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 you know, every day. fighting a fight on many fronts. <laughs> I mean, I well, no, the singular fight is, is, is actually the enemy is actually very simple. If you look at it, yeah. if you look at the epicenter of it, you know, I just wrote an article called uh, "Take Back Harvard," and it basically says, "Look, Harvard is the epicenter, the alpha, and the omega of the deep state." Think about what Harvard University represents, okay? They have more money than God. <laughs> they have more, uh, but, but yeah. if you look at their history in the 1640s, Harvard was going to go out of business. I don't know if you know this. No, I do They had a financial crisis. And what they did was they said they were going to start an Indian college. I mean, this is like almost deja vu of how they used the Native Americans. Mm -hmm. So they got funding from a Christian organization to create the second uh, brick building at Harvard. They called it Indian College. Mm -hmm. And basically, that was what got them out of their fiscal wo woes. But the idea was they were going to educate thousands of Native Americans in Christianity. They only educated fi them. <laughs> five of them. Okay. And they used that building for Harvard's printing press and to educate a lot of white kids. Doesn't it sound similar to what Elizabeth Warren did? What I'm trying to say is Harvard University puts so much of its effort into its branding. But oh, yeah. it is where the deep state gets trained. John F. Kennedy School of Government is where the CIA, all these guys get trained. And they have a collusion. You have Harvard Medical School, Harvard Business School, you know, J John F. Kennedy School of Government. 30% of the admissions is legacy admissions, right? I don't know how Charlie Baker really got in there. You know, his father went there. You know, seriously. I mean, how do these people get, do they really? You're not a legacy. I'm not legacy. No. But no. I'm saying that's how Harvard runs on. So if you look at that entire epicenter, yeah. 
you know, you can point to the fact that we have a Brahmin intellectual elite in this country mm -hmm. that the deep state, and I think they need to be destroyed in a, in a very fundamental way mm -hmm. because they're the ones who are creating all these narratives and, and creating race war. If I could just summarize, it seems like whether the answer to racism or to the medical crisis we have. You can point right at Harvard crisis. University. Okay. I'm, being, I'm telling you, you can point, I can give you a longitude and a latitude That may have been where this. it started, but it sounds like the answer to, to these issues is all awakening and becoming aware of what the truth is and what's really happening exactly. I think to all is what's being done to us. Yeah, I, I think, As you know, what is something legislative. Yeah, I and, think. And I just want to make sure, could we get up Dr. Shiva's uh, website so he, they can go to and see some of these articles that were talked about? Yeah, if you go to shivaforsenate.com, we have a blog page there. Mm -hmm. I, okay. I write the articles. Hopefully they'll post it up. There we yeah. go. Okay, yeah, Thank you. Website at least. The yeah, if you guys go to Shiva for Senate, you know, our goal, I think you hit it on the head, Larry. I like your name, Way, right? One of the slogans I had was, you know, which I, you know, know the truth, be the light, and find your way. Mm -hmm. And what that really means is we have an incredible opportunity with all the chaos going on, mm -hmm. what people think. You know, the Renaissance took place where there were plagues and chaos. Right. It's the greatest opportunity for change. Right. And that's it's what we have. And I think even if people just go to your website and start reading some of these articles that you've talked about, I think that'll be a tremendous amount of light and definite and understanding that people will be yeah. able to get, be able to start that change. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, the founders of this country were very, very deeply spiritual people. Right. They were deeply practical people, deeply skilled people, right. and people really cared about service. Right. I mean, these people risked their lives. Right. None of these politicians risked their lives. I risked my life when I went on to the Parkman bandstand. It was 40 of us and the, and the Boston police against 40,000 people. None of these politicians will risk their lives. I have risked my lives and will risk my life for this country. I watched at uh, Boston Common yeah. uh, event and it was uh, very sad because you were uh, stating what everybody there in that crowd should have been supporting. Um, and all you had was people protesting, yelling, getting violent. If I could ask you just about a current movement, that would be the walkaway movement. What would your reaction to that movement be? Well, look, the walkaway movement, uh, uh, it's it's a good thing to walk away, but we need to walk away from both political parties because it's the walk away movement is being said walk away from the Democrats. Right. We need to walk away from the Democrats and the Republicans. Right. Both of these party machineries uh, will p keep people in bondage, and we don't want the pen. You know, I'm, I'm saying we don't want, we want to get off the pendulum. Okay, swinging back. Yeah, we don't want to be off the pendulum. We don't want to play their games anymore. We don't want to be on a seesaw. Right. Let them have their playground because we can never win. We should walk away from both political parties. And it's time for people to recognize that uh, independence, sh we can win. Because Massachusetts, it's 56, 58% independence. Yeah, and independence and typically vote Republican or Democrat because they've engineered, brainwashed people, bullied people into thinking that you have to choose a lesser of two evils. This that is, is always a, the pitch, yeah. Yeah, that's a, oh, years. you can never win as an independent, but I'll tell you, that I can win as an independent. And I'm the only one, by the way, who can defeat Elizabeth Warren. And I say that with all humility because, and that's why the mainstream media is so afraid to even cover us. Because they know if it's toe-to-toe -to -toe between me and Warren or any- the, Have the, you asked for a debate with her? We have. We and have. the answer uh, has no, been- uh, But she, 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 she's- I think we have about 20 debate? seconds left. I, I think the bottom line is only a real Indian can defeat the fake Indian. Okay. And, and when I say that, and I'll say it over and over and over again, that's why everyone loves our slogan, is because only a real Indian can defeat a fake Indian because 
you're looking at someone who's a real American and who really loves this country. And Elizabeth Warren does not love this country. She loves herself and the elite group that she represents. We'd like to have you, you back. Sure. Because I feel that we've touched on a lot of issues that would Just require much more in-depth discussion that I think people could... We do a whole series. ...could be interesting. I'd like, I would like to even I would try... I like a three-part yeah. series on I would like to try to make the next uh, conversation open phone. Sure. So people can call in because yeah. have some it, radical it ideas. Like the yeah, so I mean, I, certainly ready for yeah, it. Yeah, we, we also allow, we've also, you know, I've tweeted out my cell phone address. Right. I've told the press they can call me. <laughs> I've told people you can come to my home, you know. And you'll be interviewed in your home. Yeah. Elizabeth we, Warren refused to let them Yeah, because probably she doesn't probably want to show all the multi-million dollar art, artwork that she has. Thank you, everybody. Right, exactly. What a bourgeois <laughs> she Thank really you is. for coming. Exactly. Yeah. Well,